Welcome to the Evolved Caveman, where men learn to be successful and happy with your host, Dr. John Schinnerer, as he shares the most impactful ideas and practices for you to get the most from your relationships, your work, and from your life. Now, here's Dr. John. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. John back with yet another episode of the Evolved Caveman. And I'm really excited to have with me as my guest today, Eric Pilon Bignell. And it's, I guess it's a little redundant because I'm excited to have all my guests on because it's my show and I dig what I'm talking about. So Eric is a best-selling author, speaker, and pragmatic futurist. And if that doesn't grab your attention, I don't know what does. His recent book, Surfing Rogue Waves, presents a gripping and insightful framework on how to pick up a board and surf the rogue waves of the 21st century and perhaps beyond. Eric's love of being outdoors led him to use the parallels between life and surfing as a metaphor for how we can deal with the changes happening all around us. So Eric, as I mentioned, he's a pragmatic futurist focused on addressing disruption by increasing the creative capacity of individuals, teams, and organizations to ignite change, innovation, and foster continuous growth. The undergraduate degrees in engineering, there's an MBA in information systems, and because he's a glutton for punishment, he has a PhD mm-hmm. in global leadership. And his doctoral work primarily explored complexity sciences centered on executive cognition and their use of intuitive improvisation, decision-making, AI, and data-based decision models. And, and one of the sentences that he put in there that I love is that the decisions and actions we take today, no matter the size, will ultimately determine the fate of humanity. So Eric, thank you so much for coming aboard. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so let's talk a little bit about surfing as a metaphor, because, you know, in, in my field, John Kabat-Zinn, who's a mindfulness kind of guru, has a line, and, and this refers more to thought and emotion, of you can't stop the waves from coming, but you can learn to surf them. And, and I imagine there's some carryover there. Yeah, that is, uh, that's absolutely probably a, a central theme, right? I feel surfing aligns so well in life. A person can surf, yet can in no way calculate all these real-time variables required to surf. I, I love to surf. I'm not sure if you, you know, you surf. I'm a terrible surfer. Right? I grew up a Canadian kid, you know, landlocked in Toronto. But um, at the same time, what makes a great surfer is simple, right? Like just understanding all the complexity of cosmos and earth and, and lunar tidal patterns and as long as you can do like real-time computations and mix you know points and surface tension and mass and shape and hydrodynamics all together and you can calculate all that in real time you'd be a great surfer yet you know that's not what happens right it, you know if you have the right knowledge and experience and practice surfing just kind of happens and, and that's why i think this parallel works so well and we're seeing what i call rogue waves building on on your explanation there um We've got, we can't decouple all these megatrends we're happening now and advancements, honestly, in, in, in neurophysiology suddenly advances, you know, a great breakthrough in our understanding of pattern recognition, which has a breakthrough in, you know, AI development. They're, they're all so interconnected now. We have this robust pipeline of advancements in science, our understanding of the brain and technologies themselves, that where one's going to fall short, the other one will come through. And, you know, we don't know exactly which one will hit in what order, but we know they're coming. So these waves, they're coming. And to your point, you can either learn to surf and put yourself in the best position to surf these waves, which is, you know, the theme of the book, or you can kind of just hope, pray, and 
you know, get right over for them when they come. So, you know, you can't precisely plan the future much in the same way while sitting in the ocean, you can't exactly predict each wave, but you can surf them. And as long as you've got a solid rational foundation, a surfboard, for example, you follow an improvisational framework in theory, like a surfer, you can surf the waves that emerge through the complexity of life, both in the ocean and in life. And that's, that's really a central theme of, of, you know, the surfing framework, the theoretical framework that I, yeah. And, and I, I think that that saying by Kabat-Zinn really fits into this well of you can't stop the waves from coming because I don't, we can't stop technology from advancing. And so it's more, how do we best adapt and how do we, I think, how do we advance it ethically and morally, which is, which is a big issue. And it, it makes me think of, you know, when I hear futurist, I go to Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil mm. and um, you know, and, and his kind of thoughts on, the convergence of nanotechnology, robotics, and AI, and the need to have some sort of ethics behind the development of that. Because I, I for instance, my grandfather worked on the atomic bomb back in the day. And okay. he was just asked by Lawrence Livermore Lab to do equations, to you know, solve these novel equations. And he didn't know what it was for. And then later he put together the pieces and he had a great deal of regret about it. And, and so I think that example completely does away with the ethics in it. And, and it worries me a little bit about how these technologies develop in either silos or vacuums or individuals. Yeah, more than ever. And we're, we're, we're blending realities everywhere, right? There, there, there are blurry, you know, lines. And I think there's some, you know, I think that's a great example of, you know, inventing the atomic bomb. And at the same time, there was a, another country on the other side of the world whose ethics and morals might be very different than, than ours. And they were also, you know, going after, there's a great, there's a great um, book on, on Niels Bohr and how he was mm. apparently pretty close to figuring it out. And once he figured out what it was for, he actually purposefully like didn't want to continue figuring it out. Right. The same way they kind of, you know, I think they blocked out Einstein on that and they kind of tried to decentralize it, to put it all together. But to your point, what we're getting with now is, is privacy and surveillance and transparency mm. into how decisions are being made. And that's, you know, when you get into convoluted neural networks, which are, you know, some of the fastest growing areas of AI development, we don't know how they're coming to these decisions, you know, but on top of that, to your point, technology bias, if we're making these technologies, we might not even purposefully build in the bias and the bias doesn't mean I accidentally programmed it in there. If right. I was to, t- you know, if I was to take a technology and get it to learn, give it Wikipedia and the internet and get it to learn. And this is how it kind of works, right? The more information you can get it, the better it learns. If I could get it to just look at our history, read all the books, read all the internet, it would come out and it would say, well, that's great. You know, Eric, John, you guys, you should be leaders, you're white males. And, you know, my wife, she should sit in the kitchen and cook because that technology will have picked up all our biases unconsciously through our books and our history. And obviously you and me are equipped no better than any, than any female to lead in any kind of role, but the bias built in over the hundreds of years, right. Is, is, is going to come forward. So, and it opens up. That was a joke, right? Right. Okay. Just want to make sure just for the listeners. (laughs) Right. right. Like that motherfucker. Son of a, um, but but (laughs) But to your point on how we're developing in different places, there are, you know, forget our history right now, depending on which culture you are, where in the world you are, there are very different beliefs in what's okay and not okay, right? So 
that's developing AI where, you know, unfortunately, if you give it smaller data sets that are maybe more accurate or less accurate, what you're actually doing is you're limiting yourself to someone else who's giving it an unlimited, unlimited data set. So you can look at countries like China where it's just different there. Their people actually don't have any rights to their data. So their government can build these incredible, incredible machines that can learn and these algorithms where we don't. We, you have the right to opt in or out here, right? Europe's actually kind mm -hmm. of in the middle and it's the opposite. You have to opt in to give them your data. So they, they're almost like even more handicapped because they have even less kind of information. So there's all this and, and you know, the ethics into, you know, job automation and autonomous systems and where do we point blame and you know we're moving to you know self-driving cars now but you know we you know what do we do and we're not in control right we don't know what who do we blame if an autonomous car you know hits a kid is it the 5g network that it, is it the parts provider is it do we just always sue elon musk because you know he's kind of on top of everything like it deep we, we've got a we lot of deep pockets right that's right so we, <laughs> you know we've just got so many to, you know you mentioned um going out there. And, and I do love Kurzweil and, and, and those individuals, but they're very 30 years out. Right. And I think, you know, in the intro, you mentioned it, like the pragmatic approach is through complexity sciences. What can you and me do today? Whether it's individual little things, we can shape and nudge complexity in a direction. Unfortunately, we can't control it. And that drives us not because we want to know exact dates, when, where, what, but if we can generally shape it, you know, and we understand and look for these things, we can position ourselves best adapt for those things when the time comes. Well, I was thinking about this interview just about an hour ago, and that's one of the things that came to mind is the idea that your future perspective, I guess, needs to be identified for the listeners. But also, I thought that we might be going, you know, one to five years in the future, as well as 30 to 50 years in the future. And you kind of need to, or we need to uh, define where our thinking's going before we talk about it, interestingly. Yeah, we need to define it. And then we also need the dreaded both, right? So if our goal is right. to, you know, get a handle on this ecological crisis and we want to be, you know, net neutral carbon emissions by 2030 or to a certain level by 2030, but it gives us zero chance of being fully carbon neutral by 2050, then, you know, I'd actually rather take a couple steps backwards right now to, to hit the longer term goals. Um, so... A large part of it is just awareness. We need to be having more of these kind of discussions. And then to your point, there is these big, you know, happiness. And, you know, if we're getting more happier, what are we doing? It opens up kind of the real big questions. And, you know, you're very much performance focused with, with you know, a lot of your clients and stuff. And we were chatting about this quick earlier, right? Mm -hmm. We do understand in, in a specific area, how, you know, we're starting to learn more and more about the brain and it can be everything. It can be in business. It can be a sprinter, you know, in a hundred meter race it can be a hockey or football player. There are certain ways to engage them to release, you know, neurotransmitters like dopamine, right. Which, which our body makes. And, you know, we can use that, that unique part, you know, of human ability to think and plan. It's very, it helps us very much, right. You know, serotonin, you know, stabilizes our moods and, you know, works towards, We've got all this great understanding and the vice versa is, you know, the cortisol, which are, I think, the primary, like, stress hormone. You would know better yep. than me. Norepinephrine, cortisol, yeah. Right. They're, those are those are bad because then, you know, they stress you more and more. Stress is less sleep and less sleep is less recovery and it, it ends in this negative cycle. So we focused a lot on how do we do this for a sprinter to get to the 100-meter line faster, right, or a hockey or football player or you know, an individual in an organizational setting, knowing his setting, what I found neat was the problem of when we pick up that individual and we drop them into this arena of life, 
there isn't this 100-meter race. You might start running a 100-meter race. You run that very different than a four or 800-meter race, and it might change while you're running it. So how do we best identify all that stuff that we're kind of coming into right now and change that's happening, like we discussed a little bit, that just kind of seems to appear tomorrow. And we don't always notice that change while it's happening. And I think that's that's the important part of the, the framework, which is you know, a mindset in a way on how to kind of put that all together. Well, and uh, boy, my mind explodes as you're talking. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I like the idea that life is a marathon, not a sprint. And so we're trying to adapt to a marathon where we just keep going. And, you know, stress, the stress response is meant to be turned on and off. And, and I, I deal with so many people that just have it in the on position and they don't even realize what relaxation feels like, let alone, you know, attempt to get back to it. And, I, and this is true of men and women to differing degrees. Um, and, and so, yeah, that part fascinates me. But let's let's back up a second and give listeners a context of technological development. So go back and for me, would you go through the first three industrial revolutions and then the fourth? Yeah, so we have the, the first industrial revolution where, you know, we're, we're I'm going to do a 30,000 foot view so we can kind of mm-hmm. see the trend and then we'll be able to apply it back down the road. That's great. But we've really got these, again, mechanistic systems, right? So this is really started in Europe. We invented a steam engine. A steam engine suddenly drives big things, long distances, right? We come into this network. We can suddenly, you know, address risk. Major things, unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of our innovation in humanity has been driven by fear. Right? If we have large groups of people that are growing, if we can't feed them, right? So now, but now we can, you know, we can get wheat and corn and we can put it in train and ship it right across the country. Um, and then from that, more things and we lead into cars and roadways and infrastructure, which allows us to, you know, ship more and more food and farming and at the same time in the second industrial revolution. And there's never really an opening day party for any of these. They just, again, yeah. kind of appear and you either notice the change or you don't, right? Um, and then we start to understand infectious diseases a little bit, despite our mismanagement of this most recent one we're in the middle of, um, where you know suddenly doctors learn that it's probably smart between surgery in the morgue to wash your hands before you deliver a baby. And we see child mortality and all these benefits to humanity getting better and better and better. And then we have this third industrial revolution that appeared you know, kind of in the 90s, and it's this, this digital revolution where all of a sudden we've got an entire new kind of network, not like the one we had that was physically built, right, to scale. It would be a linear thing. Now we've got one that's almost got this exponential power. We can, we can create communications in the Latin world in ways would have been deemed impossible, you know, 50 years ago. Even. And then we enter this, this fourth industrial revolution, which we are in right now. And it's, it's interesting because we are very much starting to blur the boundaries of Everything, really, I guess is a good way to put it. Um, So we've got networks, but not networks like you and me thought about it. Networks as in like we can communicate large amounts of data instantly almost anywhere, right? Wirelessly. Wirelessly, without wires, yeah. You know, but now we're also blending reality. So we've got virtual and augmented reality, which had some hiccups, but it's becoming more and more real in how we do that. And soon enough, you know, and again, disruption sometimes it's forced and I'm not saying it's good or bad because, you know, I'm not saying anything great came out of this COVID pandemic we're in, but it has forced at least in business's hand to move digital. And suddenly through forms of technology, you and me are talking across on the other side of the country in real time. This is great, right? In the past, we would have had to 
flown or train or something to find yeah. each other. And very different, right? So now we have, but with that, so much more information and access for everyone. So you got more people getting smarter and it's all augmenting it, right? And then we've got the actual technologies of 3D printing. And what does that look like? So, you know, it's, it's additive printing and you can do everything from printing a house or in the space station when someone broke their finger, they literally sent them, you know, a file where they could just print themselves a splint and do that. Otherwise, it would have taken through six weeks, however long, yeah. you know, you know, it would have been healed crooked by then. So when you look at a 3D printing, which is just one trend, it, when you're talking about no longer storing things and no longer shipping them on our trains and roadways, I mean, you are disrupting entire industries that are unrelated to 3D printing. Right? And these are all being augmented by different things. Well, so Eric, play with me for a little bit here, because one of the things that I love about technology and one of the reasons I've been interested in it most of my life is I think it provides a metaphor for us to understand the brain. And, and the body to some extent, right? Like back in the first revolution, the first industrial revolution, we used to think of the body as mechanistic. We used to think of the brain as having certain areas in the brain that did certain functions. The amygdala was responsible for emotion. And the further we get into it, and, and why I said wirelessly is because I think we've gone from the idea of local communication between cells, like cells have to be near each other to communicate in the body. Now we've moved to non-local communication, that cells don't have to be near each other in the body to communicate, that, you know, that it's about neural networks now. It's not about one particular part of the brain that does one function. It's about neurons firing together. And, and so I'm curious about, okay, so what does that mean for this fourth wave? And, you know, I was thinking as you were talking about 3D printing that you can print something that's no longer two-dimensional, now it's three-dimensional. And I'm like, huh, that's kind of interesting in terms of our mindset, our understanding about placebo, the, the powerful impact of placebo, the powerful impact that our mindset has and our primal world beliefs, what those have on us. Yeah, you start to change the game when you're printing organs all of a sudden, right? Um, yeah. And I think to your point, and, and I, I think it's a good example on how we can kind of connect everything, right? So we've got the material sciences and nanotechnology and biotechnology, and these are all blending, but it's our advancements in understanding in, say, complexity sciences that suddenly open up our understanding of, you know, the brain and these technologies, and they're all together. So in, in What's great about complexity and complexity sciences and, and complex adaptive systems is they have this emergent phenomenon. And sometimes mm -hmm. they're great and sometimes they're not. You know, we see them in stock market bubbles and crashes and forest fires and ecological crisis. But to your point, we also see them, you know, at a, at a, at a, at a single level, that neuron is, is nothing. Either that synapse, it's firing across. But together, we get this, this emergent phenomenon that we don't understand exactly how it works, but we understand how how to get the end result right we have this black box in the middle but we get this we get intelligence and creativity and some of these amazing things and your neurons <laughs> and synapses in your brains they're not getting together having a powwow sitting around the table deciding who goes where in what order yeah. so you know it's just that's that's the this this complexity science is this emergence phenomenon now again what's getting crazy and scary as we understand this better and you mentioned wirelessly is if i augment parts of your brain Right. And release certain chemicals electronically from through parts of your brain. Right. To create more dopamine, right. More serotonin, all these things, and less cortisol. I mean, I, I can make you better. You know what I mean? I can make you perform better. I can make you perform at a higher level. I can make you achieve things that normal people might think are impossible. 
I'm artificially stimulating those, but they are still very much you doing that. So we are starting to augment and blur where, where is that okay and not okay, right? So obviously, you know, you go whole brain emulation, you're like, yeah, download your brain into a, you know, a hard drive and you're in the cloud. Yeah, people are like, yeah, yeah, they freak out. But we are doing the other things right now. We are yeah. stimulating. And who's well, and to it, your point? ethics on where does that stop or why is it okay or not okay or sorry i get really excited about this yeah. but it, it makes me think of kurtzweil's singularity right that combination of brain or mind and the internet and you know we, we've we're seeing the beginning steps of that now where we've got wireless connection to someone that has lost the ability to speak and we have we can read the brain waves and using a computer you can uh, help that person to speak we've seen you know chimpanzees hooked up where they can play pong wirelessly just with with their brain yeah, so I, I mean all this stuff is coming and it's closer than we think if you're not keeping your finger on the pulse yeah and i think there's so many great ones that when you're looking for them you, you know th those examples are great there's another one with a, a basic kind of i'm going to get it wrong egg or ecg or e whatever. ecg or fmri or spectre yeah. <laughs> um when you're sleeping it's actually taking those um firing patterns and it's able to recreate pictures which accurately map to what you're thinking of in your dream while you're sleeping so yeah. now you know we're almost capable of actually knowing what you're thinking before you're thinking and again we might ethically say we need to stop you know advancing this research but that doesn't mean russia and china and other countries might not um right so where who draws those lines where and your your atomic bomb is a great example unfortunately i think we're sitting on a whole bunch of them you can't just put a pin atomic in the bombs yes yeah you know, you know, we've got all these other trends that are. Oh yeah. Well, and if you combine them too, they're really troubling. If you think of AI robotics, nanotechnology in the wrong hands, like that's some scary shit. Exactly. And that's, I mean, just think of drones. I, that's, that's the rogue wave, right? So a rogue wave is when you have a bunch of different waves that suddenly come together and augment each other. And out of nowhere, you get this violent, huge wave. And that's, you know, the surfing rogue waves is, is the theme of the book. Cause to your point, drones layered on top of AI, but I'm going to get into material sciences and nanobiology. So I'm actually going to make this stuff out of wet matter. And it's actually going to fly around through your bloodstream. And you actually never yep. have to go to a doctor because we calculate everything in real time. We're not that far away from some of this stuff. Yeah. I don't know. We're not really talking enough about it, but otherwise we're going to wake up in a world which you might be for or against these things, but it's well, going to be like having Google in your house and Siri. I, I mean, I remember I was doing a presentation at Stanford medical school and there was a brilliant guy sitting next to me that was presenting with me. And he was talking about, you know, medications being three-dimensionally printed. And then you take the medication and there's Bluetooth capability in the pill so that you can get a notification that your grandmother took her medication at the right time. And that it's been digested in the stomach. Right. That's Crazy. mind blowing. Right. And I mean, and they've got like a smart sand now, I think they call it. So it's, it's currently the size like an apple seed, but eventually it'll be the size of a, um, half a rice grain. Yeah, yeah, like, and they can store a couple terabytes of like Wikipedia information oh. on for fun, and they they throw it in your body, and they they track everything in real time. So wow. there are going to be amazing benefits of that. To your point, is like preventable deaths, right? And we will, you know, get to, don't even get into CRISPR and some of these things, but we're going to remove yeah. like sickle cell. And it's going to be there are so many amazing advancements. What concerns me is we have this inability of. <laughs> Fixing and upgrading humans, right? We started with plastic surgery, we put war soldiers back together. That's, it was very good, but that is not what keeps the plastic surgery in business nowadays. Uh, <laughs> it, really? It it's not? 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I'll just leave it there. It's something else is driving the plastic industry surgery right now. Um, so, but, but, you know, and that's, you know, it just kind of appeared and here we are one day, but some of these other things are a lot more potent right now. We're talking about playing with, you know, intelligence and augmenting intelligence. And you, you can say what you want to, you know, so, as an individual can say, but to your point, the, the waves are coming. You can say, I'm not doing that. And that's fine. But if your kid is not genetically altered through CRISPR, he's never going to have a chance to compete in the world. against a disadvantage. Yeah. Kids. So it's about keeping up with the Joneses. And you know what? Then, then North America and the whole West can say, we're not doing that. But I'll tell you how that plays out for the West 20 years from now, if Russia and China are doing it in the Olympics, go so well. for example. So, right. Yeah. Like it's so super athletes, super soldiers, super, everything, super smart. They're going to super artists, smart, yeah, super genius technologies. Everything. Well, yeah. We're already so far behind. You know, I, I've one of the stats I've read is that China has more genius level individuals than we have people in our country, more people at the 99th percentile IQ and above than we have people. No, that's, and that's frightening back to road waves. So we've got technologies augmenting each other. And then we've got our advancements in science augmenting. And now all of a sudden we have people again, augmenting, yeah. right? We have these, these waves coming together. Now we're adding smarter and smarter people and generations well, in the past. We were hunting and trying to find food. Now we have more free time. Right? So I, I'm an emotion geek, right? And so I'm always reducing it to this level because I think that's where a lot of our problems originate that, you know, we hold on to anger longer than we should. We hold grudges. We get depressed. We get stressed. We have trauma, which messes us up. And I think most of the people, well, a lot, some people in positions of power are unaware of their own trauma, of their own emotions. And that's what can drive some of these rogue waves. In other words, if I'm really angry because I was bullied in elementary school, then, and I've actually seen this dynamic where I've, I had a, um, a peer at Pomona college that programmed a virus for his senior project. I'm like, dude, why are you fucking programming a virus? Like what's the matter with you? And he was really angry. He was angry about people had treated him in the past. And to me, I'm always looking at this in terms of how do we make the world a safer place, a better place, a healthier place. And to me, it often comes down to emotion and helping people deal with those uncomfortable emotions like anger or trauma, if you want to say that's emotion or depression or anxiety, because I think that's what can fuel a lot of this. Yeah. And I, I think you nailed it. So, it, you know, when I, when I kind of put all those things together, that was the hardest part that I, I really, I fought with. So complexity sciences, we understand these large complex adaptive systems. I moved it into a specific part of the system where we see disruption, where you get in companies, you get innovation, right? In our life, we get growth and development. It's an uncomfortable space and it's counterintuitive, but we've got to keep ourselves in there. You know, the improvisational part is much like a surfer has to keep himself in the wave, much like we talked about, we don't know whether we're running 400 meters or 900 meters. Life's kind of a it's like a marathon with a bunch of little random sprints in it. Um, right. So we, we've got to be able to improvise. But that third implement, uh, that third uh, pillar that I, I built it on, and it's really at the, the center of all these things that we get this emergence, but is, is rationality, right? It's a rational foundation. And, and what I mean by that is it's a lot more than errors in our brain architecture. I'm not talking about biases. Those are there. We understand them. Even when we understand, do we? we still fall. Yeah, right. We still fall victim to them. <laughs> we do even when we understand them, right? Um, but you know, at least we, as the dominant race on the planet, have a brain that is capable of thinking about thought, and we can keep trying to work on those things. But, but to your point, when we look at ourselves, 
just shifts down at the individual level, right? The rationality kind of helps explain a little bit more around, um, you know, I can't blame bias, I can't blame this, but there are things I can do, right? I, I can work to understand, you know, misinformation and not just blindly, you know, again, they all inter intermix and blend, right? But understand that, how is no one else seeing this? Might be my confirmation bias on fire, right? We tend to look for things we want, Right. Question it from a neutral mindset, right? If this upsets me, it's okay that it's upset me. Let's go back and understand why it upsets me. When I do that, maybe maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. But if I sit here and I just tell you, John, suck it up. Don't let it upset you. That doesn't help. You know what I mean? So you can't just you can't call someone else online saying, you know, hey, this is fake news. You're an idiot. You're attacking yeah. who they are as a person, and especially in their identity. Yeah. You you are attacking their identity. You see, you see which just not, which just further cements their identity, by the way. Right. And we see it all over the place in, in, in politics. Right. And it's, you know, you're not attacking that policy or anything. You're attacking who they are as a person. And you're saying by, by agreeing with that, you know, you're an idiot. And that just blinds them even more that you're an idiot. And we have these two like bipolar divides that makes no sense. Clearly any party should have an overlap in the middle. There should be things we both agree on and, you know, right. globally for goodness sakes, never mind within this country. So that third part is really the importance in, in when you understand that it affects, we just talked about quick, it affects your decisions, right? And your decisions, yeah. even though they're small daily, they start to add up. Well, and, and you're big on, you know, personal improvisation and complexity. And, and as I was, I was listening to a podcast that you did earlier and I'm thinking emotion enters into this in such a big way in the sense that any of the negative, uncomfortable emotions, anger, sadness, fear, they, they limit the complexity of our thinking. They limit our ability to think outside the box. They limit our creativity and they reduce, basically they map onto fight, flight, freeze. And so your thinking is limited just as your physical actions are limited when you're really angry or when you're really afraid, for example. And so our thinking becomes, I like I deal with this all the time with angry people that are trapped in all or nothing black or white thinking. I'm right, you're wrong. And, and I think that, you know, the realization of the, the importance of positive emotions in your sort of framework, because the positive emotions open us up. They allow us to think outside the box. They allow for creativity. They allow for that personal improvisation. And so, again, to me, the, the emotions are really an integral part in this, because even in AI, from what I understand, and I'm not an expert, they've realized that they need some sort of emotional system in AI because at its base, the emotional system is approach or avoid. And without that base system, the AI, I guess, gets confused or goes off on tangents. Yeah. Or falls into the wrong bias, right. Or you yeah. know, falls into some of these things. And I, I think to your, to your point, because all those things are so important at the individual level and there's so much great stuff coming out right on mindfulness and resting and clearing your brain and positivity. And, you know, look, I grew up playing hockey, so I'm sure if half my buddies back home heard me, they'd just, you know, only call me a real idiot. Um, but you know, there's a lot of value we're seeing in all that, right. Even, even, even yeah. positive journaling and things like that to really kind of open up your mind and open up your creativity, but back to the importance of understanding holistically all of it. If I show up, and I'm ready to run a hundred meter race and I run a hundred meter race. And then at the end of that, you tell me I've got another 900 meters to go. It changes my mood. It affects me completely versus if I had thought about the environment that I'll be in and where I'm going to be tomorrow and what that's going to look like. And all these little decisions today that are shaping and doing tomorrow, it, it better prepares me to know that, look, 
I don't need to know exactly when this wave's coming. I know the waves are coming. And that way, when they come, I capitalize on it. And, you know, and I'm going to get, I'm going to wipe out, and, you know, each shit a few times, but you get there eventually, <laughs> right? Like, so that, that's well, the part. That's that a really important point. If I can jump in there, I, I think yeah. that we need to become more comfortable with quote failure or those wipeouts or eating shit or however you want to phrase it, challenges, you know, difficulties, roadblocks, hurdles. Like, I, I think if we can change our thinking towards that, I, I like the whole Thomas Edison model. You know, I didn't fail right. 999,000 times. I just found that many ways not to do it. Right. Or was that many steps closer? And there's, there's almost always, which we do because we try to bucket everything. There was like two camps of thoughts, right? Edison just found 999 ways that didn't work. And then one that did. And then you had, this Tesla guy who just used theory and then applied theory. And the reality is it's both because we're mm -hmm. actually trying to predict and think about places that we don't know exactly where we're going to be and what we're going to do. So, we're, you know, and, and this is again, why surfing is a great analogy. I could, you and me or myself, at least you're probably better surfer than me. I could learn everything you need to know possibly about surfing, but unless I theoretically, there, theoretically, unless I get out there and unless I surf, I'll never be a good surfer. So the, yeah. the, the doing element um, is, is very, very big. And we're in a weird era right now where we have uh, a generational, you know, a baby boomer gap. And some of them are, you know, have accepted and some of them are very stuck in their ways and they're very used to control. Right. And they're, they're, they have a lot of trouble with, but to your point, you've got this newer generation where if you can empower them, right. And do a lot of these things, you're going to get so much more out of that athlete, whether that's a, a business athlete or a person, you know, figurative. Physical well, athlete, and, and this is a little bit tangential too, but I think it folds into this that I, you know, we have competing drives as humans where one drive is we want certainty. We want control. We want to know. And the other drive is we need novelty, which is uncertainty. And, and those two drives are often at odds. But the, I mean, I, I see the pendulum swing on a cultural level in one direction in, on many levels lately. But one of the ways I see it swinging lately is towards that of certainty. And, and maybe that's a, a byproduct of COVID where we've had so much uncertainty that it, people are like, shit, I just need something to hold on to here. But I, I feel like we all want this certainty, even like, you know, you talk about disinformation. And I think we want to be certain that at least we feel that our information that we're getting is true, factual. And I don't think much of it is. Yeah. And, you know, it's... Uh, the reality is we've got this peer reviewed process, which came, that's where knowledge and power came from. And it's great, but it's long and it's slow and it's tedious slow. right? and it's double blinded. And, you know, and then we've got the news outlet in the middle, which in all reality is they're pretty biased one way or the other. For me, at least I kind of, you can figure it out what to ignore or not to ignore, but yeah. at least there is investigative journalists and at least they're trying to get some of it right, but they are in a race fast as the punch. And then we've got this crazy machine that we never knew we would build, but we built called social media regardless of platform and it's instant and it's free and it hits you with everything you want. That targeting algorithm, which is the same thing that tries to find out what you want to buy also finds out what your preferences are and what you like to click on the, the type of faces, recognitions you have titles, names, words. Well, that's just feeding and blinding you into thinking yep. a certain way. And if that's not the right way, you know, how many times do you see a post? Do you think that people go in and look up the credentials on that doctor who quoted that quote. I mean, half the time they don't even exist. You know what I mean? And it's, it doesn't matter because the damage is done. Like one viral thing comes out and it spreads. And then if that person comes out after and says, Hey, sorry, that was wrong. I didn't mean to say that. That never spreads. So, right. you know, it, well, and, and there was a study that showed that 
disinformation spreads like, I forget the multiple, but seven, eight, nine, ten times faster. So negative news spreads like a wildfire, whereas true kind of maybe boring news crawls at a snail's pace. But do me a favor. One of the things that I heard that I loved that you were talking about in the prior interview was this idea of the importance of learning what information to ignore. Can you speak to that? Yes, um, I can. Because I, I thought that was critical. Yeah, and, and that's almost the biggest part of the battle, right? Especially for, you know, individuals like us who, you know, grew up more fortunate. There's still very unfortunate parts of the world. But, you know, in, in the past, access to information was power. Today, in this fourth industrial revolution, being able to filter through the noise is actually, right? Being able to understand what information to look for is, is powerful, right? And we've got... We've got these biases, which which we're, we're making progress towards. We don't fully understand. And the reason for me that they're not sustainable if I drop an individual in the ocean of life is a lot of them are, they, these, the research takes place in a laboratory-like setting, which is good. It does advance us, but it doesn't, I might purposely make the wrong choice in life on purpose and lose money just so that you lose more money because I'm competing against you, right? That's not mm-hmm. a rational, like decision that that bias shouldn't happen. But I would say that's an anger fueled decision. It's spite. Right. Right. Or maybe strategic or whatever. You know what I mean? Like if I'm trying to, yeah. yeah, if I'm trying to beat you and your company, but, but at the individual level, we, we, we very much have what they call belief errors. And this is deeper to your point. This is us looking at ourselves. It's, we don't get to you know blame the environment here. And we have these, these free floating beliefs and, and beliefs and beliefs. And we've got examples of improper beliefs and they don't, an improper belief is something that does not accurately describe our world. So if, if it was to be tested, it wouldn't map back to the reality of the world, right? So there's a difference between a, a proper belief and, um, you know, encountering new evidence, you, you would change your mind, right? You would, you know, you're open to taking in new evidence. People who aren't doing that tend to be stuck. And we have a lot of these beliefs that have been built into us culturally for, for thousands of years because that was, that was really important. You know, when they built Rome to keep... For, give me an example. Together. Um, you know, uh, I, I give you an extreme example, um, but you've got some individuals who, you know, you know, take take modern day stuff, like they, they might not believe in infectious diseases, right? Or they might not believe in um, vaccines. Now, you cannot like vaccines, and in your vaccine, this is, you know, this isn't a political take on do the vaccine or don't do the vaccine, but the mRNA stuff, like, there's a lot behind that. You know, it did, it did come in pretty quick and we haven't researched all of it, but you know what? That's also true with the new iPhone 13. So, you know, it came right. to market pretty quick. We haven't researched it, but you'll probably use the iPhone. Yeah. What effect on the brain is it having? Is it actually, yeah. Anyway, you know, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're figuring this out, but it's also, you know, we're all, we're also in, we, we, you know, we've got a problem, you know, the extreme examples are, you, you know, you might not, you might choose not to believe in, a theory that Einstein put together in the early 1900s, right? Uh, general relativity. You just, you might not believe in gravity, but unfortunately what you believe in, John, if you don't believe in gravity, it doesn't matter. You jump off that roof, you're still going to die. You're going to hit the ground. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we're very big now. We had this big movement on like everyone's entitled to their own opinion. You know what I mean? You're, you are, unless it's... <laughs> Forget facts. It, yeah. You're, you're entitled to your own facts. opinion. Yeah. <laughs> like sure you can be entitled to your own opinion as long as it's not wrong you know what i mean there's there's a bit yeah. of that and and we get really we get really blinded um i think on some of that stuff and, and they're deeper and we see that we see that in political ones right like we just you talked about it earlier like it's, it's core to who i am you know in the book I, I do an example with you know 
why facts don't change our mind. I think with, with, with Aunt Karen, right. And, and even if you can get someone and at the time they say to you, and there's research on this, you know what, you're right. The research shows that they actually progress back to what they fundamentally want to be and believe. And, and yep. that's and, and stronger. Right. And that's irrational. Right. And, and, yep. you know, and, and that's the part that when you find yourself doing that, it takes a lot of, I don't even want to say EQ, but it, this is on you to do this. Right. You, you, when you hear something that you don't like, you know, this is going to be a, a nice way to put it. You know, you don't want to believe that it's instinctive in you. Right. To your point, he raises emotions. There's like neurophysiological yeah, things it feels uncomfortable. in your body. Yeah. Right. And so you want to believe what some, so when you get another piece of information that more supports what you want to believe, you're more likely to do that when you're aware of that, it's fine, but this is not new. When a, when a baby sees something they don't like, right. They turn away and cry or they don't want to do it. Well, we've kind of got to stop acting like babies here. There are a lot of things that we might not like that we're going to have to talk to and address. And you see with a lot of these mega trends, you know, because people go down to like, well, you know, we don't have hoverboards like we said we would in Back to the Future 3. So is technology really going that fast? You know, and you're like, okay, well, you know, we, there's there's scientists in China who are in jail for making a CRISPR baby. How's that? Yeah. Those are the, that's what we know about. Guess what? All of our governments, including the ones here, they're, they're working on stuff we don't know about. So, yeah. One well, and one of the things to this point, I think that is so critical in this whole conversation. And you know, you mentioned, do we need emotional management for that? And I would say, yeah, we do. That and you mentioned earlier in the conversation that awareness is key. And one of the things I keep coming back to that I see is just a fundamental trait for us to practice to be successful and happy is that of metacognition, meta awareness, like meta and metacognition. For those of you who don't know, is thinking about thinking. So it's reflecting back or observing your thinking, and then asking yourself, is that thought supporting me? Is that thought true? Does that thought map onto the world? To your point, Eric. And, and then I think there's meta emotion too, which is reflecting on your emotions, because I think many times our emotions are just lying to us. I mean, and think of anxiety, stress, and fear, where fear is sounding the alarm, like, oh my God, you're going to die. And it's like, well, I'm just presenting in front of my class. Right. It's not really life or death. Yeah. And, and so I, I think that that's a key component to all of this, to your point of how do we build awareness is we've got to build awareness internally within ourselves and then also create more awareness externally of the world around us. Yes. And I mean, I feel like this could be another, another book and another podcast in itself, but to your point, like what you're talking about is really hacking ourselves. We got to break some things back down because instinctively we have had um, community cognition forever, right? It, in the past, it was more important to believe what your, you know, whether it was your pack, your herd, or your, you know, your group of yeah, people tribe. you lived with. It was more important to believe what they believed than it was to be right. You know, back in Rome, right or wrong, if you didn't believe it, they lived and cut your hand off or cut your tongue out. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it wasn't about what was actually right. It was more important to believe what. So we've grown up instinctively falling into these things and not rewiring ourselves and rehacking ourselves and breaking ourselves back down. And that's the part I think that, you know, the awareness helps and, and the more we can understand that and really get that message out to people that is becoming more and more important to your point to understand what to ignore in all the noise, because there's so much of it. And, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm guilty of it too, but you know, I open my social media up like everyone else and I could probably scroll through without letting it affect me now better than I could before because I'm consciously to your point 
trying to do this, right? I have a brain and I know that my brain is capable of thinking about thought. So I don't, I don't, I don't let it trigger me. Right. Skip it over. And I just kind of move on. Whereas like, it's, when I have stra- I use strategies like, okay, I know I have to consciously work against the stuff that I'm seeing on Facebook. So one of the things I do is I'll just limit my time on Facebook. I don't sit there and scroll through my feed. I'll go on there to put information out, might look at a few posts, then it's turned off. And, and to your point, you know, and part of this kind of rehacking, rewiring our, our, our brains, bodies, and minds is that, you know, we also start to understand when you should do that. So, you know, if you've got depending on the type of person you are, right? You might protect some time really early in the morning because you're very productive in that time. You're very creative in that time. And that's not the time to open up things that like social media that can trigger you, right? Or before a big presentation. Or distract or, you, yeah. Or like if you've had a long day on the way home, that's kind of when we tend to want to do this. And then I walk into the house and I've had a long day. I'm tired and I literally want to punch everyone in the face in social media. And, you know, I'm real friendly. I'm sure my wife's real happy when I come home. She's probably trying to hit me with a pan in the head at that point, right? So, like, understanding what it does to you as well helps. You know what I mean? I think yeah. a lot of these things um, all the way through. Yeah, and, and just knowing that social media tends to make us more depressed and more anxious the longer we stay on it. And I think there was just a, a report out that Facebook is aware that Instagram is damaging to teenage girls. Yeah. Shocker. <laughs> I'm telling you, this was research I, I referenced back in 2014. Where, again, the, the developer probably didn't mean to do this with Facebook, but the mini feed had just right the mini feed had just came out, and what the it's like A/B testing on anything else, right? Well, what the algorithm started to do is it wanted to understand how people reacted, so it would give you all positive things in your feed, and it would give me all negative things in the feed, and then it was trying to see what I would post. And shocker, mm-hmm. I'm posting negative stuff. And you're posting positive stuff. So now you've got companies controlling your feelings. You didn't opt into that research. Technically, when we do research, right, you should have a right to know your being. Right. These are these blurry lines that were they're happening everywhere. And who's controlling that? And why is it, you know? When, and what's the documentary that came out recently? Social Affair, Social Network? What was... uh, it's, uh, it's the one with targeted algorithm, right? Where they yeah. take it down the rabbit holes. Social Dilemma? Social dilemma. That's it. Yeah. By the way, everyone should check that out. I mean, just to know what social media is doing. And because I do think there seems to me to be a movement of, as you mentioned, these developers that I think their intentions were quite good at the outset. Hey, here's a way to connect people. It should be mostly altruistic. And no one saw the potential for damage. And now these developers are leaving the companies and saying, wow, there's some side effects of this that we didn't see. We didn't anticipate. And there's some problems here and I won't let my kids on any social media whatsoever. And that's us not noticing the change that's happening with social media. That's bad. But if we start playing with the brain and then we find that out five years from now, that's a very different problem, right? You know, we might have, you know, people who you know, become schizophrenic or who knows, but you know, we're not talking, I feel like enough about a lot of these things. Yeah. Well, and I think even like I, you know, we've talked about awareness. The other way I go is attention where um, I think it was the CEO of uh, Autodesk came up with this phrase of continuous partial attention that our, our attention has been so fragmented by technology that we can't, we, we, well, I don't know if we've lost, we're losing the ability to focus on one thing at a time. 
And we kind of rationalize it as, oh, I'm a good multitasker, which is mm-hmm. bullshit because there is no multitasking. What we're doing is we're rapidly transitioning our attention between one object and the next. And we can do it so quickly that it feels like we're multitasking. Yeah. And I think, I, I think, and I've, I've looked at a bunch of this and I think there's two good factors in play because this is a great example, right? You know, you you think we're good at multitasking, but here's the deal. We're not, you know, you're really, you're just, you're being good at being bad at a lot of things instead of really good at one thing. <laughs> yes. that's, that's really what it is, right? Yes, so you no, can say, right. well, look, I did 20 things. I mean, they're all garbage or you could have done yeah. one really well. And I think the reality back to, you know, the social dilemma and these algorithms and this targeting is, you know, that little ping you get in your phone that you, you check in your pocket or that you hear when you wake up or that you see a little serotonin still- dump. Yeah, a little dopamine pick, like these the little yeah. things you're feeling, they are addictive. I mean, dopamine is that's what oh, makes yeah. cocaine addictive. It floods your brain. Well, we have this addiction that if we're not multitasking now, you know, and if you don't take the time and, and, and tra- again, rehacking our minds and brains in, in the mindfulness and some of that stuff, if you're not comfortable with just clearing everything out for a second, you get this. It's 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 an addiction. It's a constant rush of wanting more of that, right? Do- dopamine, so yeah. all, all these kind of drugs that are firing into your brain. And guess what? The smartest companies in the world know that. Well, I mean, just the Apple iPhone, to your point, like we get a a hit of serotonin and dopamine just from picking up a new iPhone or probably any iPhone, because it's so smooth and so sleek and the curves are so perfect that that is very pleasing to us. And just picking up the iPhone gives us a hit. Right. And, and, you know, we've become junkies for, hits in general now, right? So it's good and bad ones, but you're feeling something, you know, and if you're not feeling something, you're not alive. But like some of these hits aren't aren't good. Cortisol yeah. is not a good hit to be hammering yourself with all the time, right? It can kind of lead you down all kinds of bad problems. And I, I think we're understanding all this stuff more and more as well. And if well, we put them the right ones on tilt, it helps. That's performance. And I, I think, you know, we see this in a big way. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I, yeah, no, as I, I said, I get excited. I, I mean, I think, you know, just getting the clicks on the likes or the hearts on Instagram, like that shit is so addictive that I think what we're seeing is less and less clothing on, I guess, both sexes. But, you know, I, I think if you're getting, you know, a million likes on Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook and, you know, you're in a bikini, then next time you, you know, you are, wear, wear a skimpier bikini. And, and I think it's headed in that direction. And, and sadly, um, not that anyone wants to see me in a bikini, but, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, you've been working I mean, out lately, though. So, yeah, you know, you yeah, got that true. going for you. Getting back into it. Um, <laughs> it, start, it starts that way, but then everyone else is in a bikini. So now I've got to go up again to get that hit. I've got to go up yeah. even more, right? And we're seeing that kind of across the, kind of across the board, right? Um, and it's, you know, that's the virility that, that can be scary and damaging. Now to your point, if you can control those hits, which is what you do with your clients, you can, you can, you know, nudge and shape that actually to very positive stuff. And right? if you can take that hit and, and you can get someone to wake up early and clear their mind and all of a sudden, you know, in their protective, you know, white time, white space time before they start work they they can write a book if they want, because they've got three hours of this incredible productivity that's good. You know what I mean? Like learning from this, we, we, we learn for the good reasons. Unfortunately, if you're in business, it's about selling products. So you're going to use it for the bad reasons, which we might not even know are bad down the road yet. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. You, I just had a, a neuron just fired in conjunction with a few other neurons. Um, <laughs> and a memory was created of, of a client that was addicted to alcohol and he got off alcohol. And, and so I was talking to him about, you know, so what are some of the positive changes that you notice 
And he said, well, it's interesting. He said, the, the one that I didn't really anticipate was I've got much greater creativity. And so I have time now and energy to, and he started naming up a couple projects that he's working on outside of work. And I was just like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's the same with like getting off of social media or some of these other technologies. Right. And I think same thing. It's this is a recurring theme. You know, we probably sound like a broken record here, but it's also interconnected, right? So when you alcohol, yeah. maybe fall asleep better, but you don't actually get better rest. You get better rest, you wake up in the morning, you're more tired. You're more tired, you're firing more cortisol. You're, then you're behind at work and you're more stressed and you're feeding the wrong cycle. Whereas, you know, I'm not saying it's easy, but like when he finally kicks this now, he's firing so much more, you know, hormones that are stabilizing his mood, right? Making him feel better, his well-being. And then that makes him sleep better. When he sleeps better, right? He can get better workouts. When he gets better workouts, his body feels better. And it's just, you know, it's kind of snowballs. snowballs yeah, it's way. either an upward spiral or a downward spiral. I mean, it makes me think of the, uh, the example of the antelope on the plains of Africa, where, you know, when the antelope is resting, that parasympathetic nervous system is in gear, the relaxation response. Then the lion comes out of the bushes, chases him. He's hungry. He wants his lunch immediately the sympathetic nervous system kicks into gear, that fight-flight response, and he takes off. All blood's shunted into his legs, digestion stops, any sexual reproductive urges stop, any healing of wounds stop. And then as soon as he gets away from the lion, the parasympathetic comes back online automatically. And the relaxation response kicks in. He can go find some water, find a cute antelope, um, you know, go back to healing that wound on its leg. And that's great for the animals, but the problem that we have with it is we've got that big prefrontal cortex and all it takes for us to kick that sympathetic nervous system in gear is a thought. And, and so it really comes back to having the ability to manage and challenge your thoughts. Yes. And, yeah, and then we've got everything else, rogueways, right? Augmenting all that stuff with you, you know, and, and the yeah. antelope, to your point, that's complexity. That's emergence. The antelope doesn't sit there and think, oh no, there's a lion coming. I better fire all the blood to my high active muscles so I can run away. Right. It just happens, right? And very much like, it, it, you know, once that fear is gone, fear motivates it. What's its next thing? I don't know, reproduction probably, right? And reproduction is is an instinctive thing. Once you're done reproducing, you might eat a bit and then guess what? You get this urge to reproduce again. Well, we also cheat some of these things, right? So believe it or not, it's hard to believe, but most people aren't having sexual intercourse today to reproduce a kid. We have found ways around this. We do it for pleasure, right? That, that, that's why we do it. Not because we have this instinctive, we need to do this. Damn, I knew I was that. doing that wrong. Yeah, I'm doing it all that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now you can do way more. Um, it's, it's, it's way cheaper, by the way, as well. Um, and even, even when our bodies fail us, right? Even when like physically we're unable to do that. Well, you know, now it's just a little pill and you're back in the game. So we, yeah. we're on top of everything you're saying, which is this, this internal battle where, you know, we've got science and technology and everything else just augmenting it where, you know, again, you can be, I'm not saying any of these are good or bad, but they just appear. And we're, we've got a lot of very potent changes coming that are going to appear one day. And we're not really talking about a bunch of them. Yeah. And, and it, it's interesting because this conversation has gone back and forth between the internal and the external. And, you know, my belief, my bias is that this sort of cultural change, world change, technological change begins with changing the self first, that if we don't have awareness, then it's hard to really influence the world around us. So I don't know what your, you know, what your thought is on that. Yeah, no, I mean, you're exactly right. So at the end of the day, you know, and you made the comment, like it is, 
believe it or not, all the small decisions you and me make today that shape the future of humanity. Now that's like Eric. Yeah, I love that. Getting, you're getting way out there, but here's the reality of how complexity works. We are like agents in this system, and we all kind of nudge each other certain ways. And, and the general way that system as a whole nudges is where we end up, and that that is humanity, right? You know, and so all these little intricacies. They are affecting us. They're affecting us physically. They're affecting us mentally. They're affecting developments of what we do. And that is ultimately where we are going to end up, like it or not. So, you know, I think in the past, when it, when it was back in the first industrial revolution, it was about control. There were a few individuals at the top who controlled the whole system. Reality now is that's not the case anymore. We see major movements across every country in every culture right now. And that's not driven by government. It's driven by people who are changing the way things should be, right? And that's what's shaping the future of humanity is now we are more than ever, you know, even though there's more noise, you in a way have more ability to affect change than probably ever any other time in, in human history, right? Because you go back to any other century or culture, you know, an individual in a, in a, you know, I don't know, an individual working in a camera shop doesn't have much right now. They can, they can create a digital camera or an iPhone and actually suck out every client out of the digital camera industry for a thing. That's not even a camera. It's an iPhone. Mm -hmm. It's not even a direct competitor. Right. So we're seeing this, these different forms of disruption and, and that is all based on little decisions you, you and me make. And when we have these billions and billions and billions of decisions, every second happening, we are, we are like it or not shaping the way the future is going to turn out. Well, Eric, I got to say, I unfortunately, it, it, I, we have to wrap up at some point. Um, I've greatly enjoyed this conversation. I don't know what, I, I have no meta awareness about what this sounds like to anyone listening, but it's been fascinating to me. Um, so thank you very much again for your time. But is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have or anything that you want to share? Uh, name of the book, where you can get it, website? Yeah, uh, the website is... E-R-I-C-P-B.me. So Eric P-B.me. I didn't make anyone try to spell out my last name on uh, that one. So um, smart. <laughs> and then uh, the book's available everywhere from Walmart, Target, Barnes and Nobles to obviously uh, the Amazons of, of the world as well. So the book's called Surfing Rogue Waves and it's uh, a compass to navigating um, you know, the disruption of the fourth industrial revolution. So it's, 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 it's subtitled How to Paddle Out in the 21st Century. And you've had some great success with this book, correct? Yeah, you know, I've been very fortunate. I was never uh, an author growing up by any means. It was a bit of a COVID project for me. And um, I love that. And more, more importantly, what I love is it's it's a compass, right? It's, it, it points you north, but it doesn't tell you what detour to take or how to step. So everyone uses that very differently. So I love hearing people who speak and have grown up with a different context or lens of the world than I have. They have so many different kind of cool views on on how to use it. So I, I, I do love... Um, kind of hearing from everyone and all the success. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's been great. It's just very humbling. I think anyone, you know, times are most valuable assets. So if anyone's giving me their time to skim or read the book, I'm very appreciative. Well, and I'm very appreciative of your time. I, again, greatly enjoyed this conversation. Um, and again, the website is ericpb.me. Yes, sir. And the book is Surfing Rogue Waves. And for those of you who are listening, please remember to like, rate, review, and share if you found this helpful at all. And thank you for giving us your time. This is Dr. John on the Evolved Caveman, signing off. 
Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 